Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Today, I am very humbled to meet Andrew Hunt. Andrew is the champion of African superfoods, launching the award-winning social business Aduna in 2012. But it is his tireless work, radically rethinking value chains and the business models which support them, which have resulted in him being given awards entitled Social Impact Investment of the Year and Most Innovative Sourcing. Andrew and I are talking during the first few weeks of the global coronavirus pandemic, and so we'll also hear from him as to his advice and insight on how smaller businesses are beginning to tackle this huge crisis and what it may mean for global social ventures. So, Andrew, welcome. Thank you very much, Katie, and thank you for having me. Ah, pleasure, always. Andrew, in 2012, you co-founded Aduna. What really led you to this? So, it's a little bit of a long story, actually, and it's actually my life story, so I'm going to have to tell you that. When I came out of university, I went into the advertising industry here in London, and I spent three, three and a half years working for big multinational clients, helping to launch brands and products, but generally for products that I either didn't particularly care about or in some cases actively disagreed with, and often for clients who didn't really seem to appreciate it very much. And I ended up asking myself, what am I doing with my life? Is this really what I'm here on earth for? And that questioning turned into an existential crisis. And the existential crisis turned onto a full-on nervous breakdown. And at the age of just 25, I ended up unemployed because I'd quit my job and clinically depressed. And I was in that condition for a full six months, trying everything from yoga, acupuncture, psychotherapy, antidepressants, and nothing made any difference. And I really thought my life was over until... One morning, I got this random phone call from a family friend, and he said, look, I heard you might be looking for something, and we've got this project in the Gambia, and they need help with marketing. And if we'd put you on a plane and put you up somewhere, would you, would you be interested in helping out for a few weeks? And to be honest, at that point, I wasn't interested, because when you're clinically depressed, you're not interested in very much, least of all going to some godforsaken outpost in Africa. I had all this negative stuff in my head about Africa, having never been there myself, just from being a, a passive consumer of the media, you know, kind of disease and corruption and civil war and all that kind of stuff. So I thought, no, no, thank you very much. If I'm going to be suicidal, I'd much rather do it from the comfort of my own sofa. But thankfully for me, friends and family had other ideas. They put me on the aeroplane. And a couple of weeks later, I rocked up in the Gambia which is known as the Smiling Coast of Africa. And it's something of a, a miracle in my personal life that having been through that six months of you know, real hell and thinking I'll never get out the other side, it took just three weeks of arriving in the Gambia and I came back to life. And instead of staying for the initial planned six weeks, I ended up staying for four years, working with small-scale producers of fruits and vegetables 
and helping to connect them into, in this case, the local market. And really, it was that experience in the Gambia over a period of years, working with farmers and in a, in a market-based approach, where number one, I got really inspired by Africa. And you know, as a marketer, I just felt like Africa was getting such a bad press. Normally, you know, the brochure, if you go on holiday or we go traveling, the brochure is normally better than the destination. And in the case of Africa, you know, the, the reporting was so negative and the experience of being there was just amazing. I felt like I'd been, you know, plugged into the, the heart of vibrancy and vitality and positivity. Um, and I felt like I wanted to share that with the rest of the world. And then on, on the, you know, the, the, the enterprise side, having been so turned off by business, by working you know, with some very big blue chip multinationals as my clients and not really seeing the value, I got really switched back onto business by a, a different type, you know, an entrepreneurial social business where if the business did well, then I started to see transformation happening in the lives of some of these farming uh, farmers and their families. So for example, you know, I would have a big harvest one week and then go back the next week and the kids that weren't in school are now in school or they're building an extra room on their house so the whole family doesn't have to sleep in the same bed anymore. And that just felt really, really good. It's not something I'd experienced before is really being a contribution to others. And uh, yeah, that's really where the inspiration came from Aduna, which ultimately ended up combining what I'd learned in advertising, which as it turned out wasn't complete waste of time in terms of creating a brand a consumer brand but a brand with purpose and in this case you know the purpose being it's a vehicle to connect small-scale producers in rural Africa with the global market and you know to leverage what I'd learned really about small-scale ethical supply chains. Goodness what a story Andrew and I know that you also have some thoughts on past and existing aid models to assist that potentially those farmers that you were working with and assist agricultural development in rural Africa. Um, Perhaps could you tell us a bit more about those thoughts? Yeah, I think one of the other things that I became really present to while I was working in the Gambia, and I was working under the umbrella and inside the office of an international NGO, and what I really witnessed firsthand was the abject failure of the aid model for development in rural Africa. And I I suspect it would be the same in any other rural parts of the developed world. And I'm sure many of the people listening will already be familiar with this universe. But for those who aren't, I'll just sketch it out a little bit, which is that every year, hundreds of millions of donor funds from multilateral organizations like the World Bank and the, the UN and the EC and IFAD and the FAO, et cetera, are ploughed into time-bound development projects. So these are three years, five years, seven years projects to grow or rather to work with women. And it's always a kind of numbers game. So it's 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 women being trained to grow X, Y, or Z cash crop, which some highly paid consultant at the World Bank or the UN, and I've done that as well, by the way. So I know that inside of those beasts as well some highly paid consultant has said it's the next big thing whether it be to trade for biofuels or 
Moringa Leaf, which is one of the, the products that we work with. But they will they get these um, big budgets. They get an air-conditioned office, buy in a fleet of Pajeros. They pay the women per diems to come to the training session. So the per diem, they will come literally just for the per diems often because the per diem is more than what they could get from you know, doing their usual activities. And they're given seeds, tools, training, etc. And this whole huge production happens. But tragically and astoundingly, really, for anyone that's come from any kind of private sector background, nobody has thought of who is actually going to buy these crops that are being produced. And they will be pointing to a, you know, the market section of a project document that says there's this huge market in theory but there's no actual buyer in practice. And so routinely, these projects fail due to lack of viable market. And what happens is the project expires, the money runs out, and then those women have to uproot those crops and go back to their traditional subsistence activities. And they wait for the next you know, aid project to come along. And that is how the, the downward spiral of aid dependency continues. And I have seen this throughout the whole of rural Africa is littered with rusted signposts for failed projects of this sort. And um, everyone that I've spoken to in the industry, I, I haven't met anyone who works in the development industry who has really witnessed anything other than this. It's quite extraordinary. So at the same time as all this waste is happening, there's also an abundance of indigenous trees, plants and, and crops that are already there and that are being completely overlooked. And baobab is one of them, and that's one that we've really focused on. This is a, a tree that grows in the, in fact, it, it grows only in the driest, remotest, harshest regions of Africa, um, 32 different countries. No such thing as a baobab plantation, so every single tree is community-owned family owned and wild harvested and it produces this amazing nutrient dense fruit which dries naturally on the branch meaning that it doesn't require any uh, refrigeration it has a natural shelf life of three years and an extraordinary nutrient dense food with six times the vitamin c of an orange and twice the calcium of milk six times potassium of bananas 50 percent fiber half of which is soluble fiber so it's, it's just an extraordinary product and we estimate that there are 10 million households in rural Africa who can supply this fruit from a crop that already exists and currently goes mainly to waste. So the Aduna thesis really is that rather than investing or you know, often wasting money in production projects to produce commodities or cash crops that don't have a ready market why not take some of that you know that funding and put it in actually creating the market for some of the products that are actually already there wow that's amazing story andrew thank you very much for sharing and i have heard about the baobab amazingly as such a superfood um, but i didn't realize that you were the man who brought it to us for those who are listening, could you perhaps share a bit more about the Aduna business as a whole? Like, what does it mean, where it's come from, et cetera? Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, um, it leads on from there, really, which is that I've mentioned that Aduna is a social, uh, a social business and we have a brand 
and the purpose of that brand is to connect small producers in Africa with the global market. But we also have an ingredient business as well. So the the brand uh, or the purpose of the brand is to pioneer these innovative and underutilized crops or ingredients like baobab, like moringa, and more recently funio, to pioneer them into the market and to actually catalyze and cause the market for them. And then the ingredient business is about supplying those once they're on the radar of um, the food and beverage personal care manufacturers, supplying them as ingredients, which is how the impact and the scale can be achieved. But really, the whole concept is a, is a reversal of the failed aid model that I described, which is really myopically production-focused. And the, the definition of a value chain inside the agricultural aid community unfortunately, it seems to stop at the production. Whereas, as we know, in the business community, there is no such thing as a value chain until somebody somewhere puts their hand in their pocket and parts the company with some cash. And that's the point that the, you know, the value chain is, is actually activated. And that is how value and financial economic value can be passed and connected from you know, consumers over here with Rural communities, rural communities in, in Africa and other parts of the world. So we focus. We have a thesis which we call demand creation, and I've already, you know, I've already described it really. But it's saying, look, let's let's look at the underutilized, high value, high potential um, crops that are there indigenously in Africa, and let's focus on investing in the the creation of the market and our thesis is that by by doing that in fact you know a dollar invested in demand creation is more impactful and more sustainable than a dollar spent in you know trading or production of a low value commodity and um, that has been a very difficult idea to to get across and particularly with the traditional aid community and the traditional financing models which really marketing is a dirty word in international aid you know because people want money to be going into community level projects community level activities they don't want money to be going into a team of marketers in london doing sampling and social media etc however i think we've we've really demonstrated the effectiveness of it and the baobab example is the best one we have as a case study because when we started in 2012 as you said there was close to zero awareness of baobab as a food as an ingredient i had to personally introduce baobab to the buyers of the specialist health food retailers like holland the barrett whole foods planet organic who had never heard of it and we had to spend you know we have spent seven years educating the market about it we talk about early adopters in this case. They are vegans, vegetarians, raw foodies, yoga mums, health and fitness fanatics. And we've spent, you know, seven years educating them because they hadn't heard of it either. And now they mainly have. And we've gone from me standing in Planet Organic with my sampling kit, you know, um, educating consumers one by one to get those initial sales through to having Baobab 
listed as a new food trend in Mintel reports year after year. We've done a Make Baobab Famous campaign with a window takeover of all 750 Holland and Barrett stores in the UK. And we've had Baobab featured in the Superfood series. And as a result of all the work that we've been doing, um, this year in Ghana, northern Ghana, which is where our supply chain is based, we, uh, in fact, we started there five years ago with three communities. This year we are collecting 650 tons of baobab from 92 women's cooperatives and it's about it's 2000 more than 2000 women who we're sourcing from and then another 250 who are being employed in the processing center so we're talking about a total population of you know maybe 10 to 15000 people whose lives have been transformed by this new stream of income at the most vulnerable time of year and it's sustainable because it's a you know it's a year on year trade and there's no there's no aid involved you know there's no subsidy there's no aid and so i think now we've got this really what we call working prototype of a demand creation model where it's really ready to scale and how do we scale it is by partnering with major multinational food and beverage companies who want to use the ingredients um, in uh, future product development. And I think it's very exciting for them. We are engaged with a few, but really what we're, what we're offering with our ingredient innovation is what we call transformational foods. And why are they transformational? There are kind of three criteria. The first one is about transforming the diets of consumers over here. There's a, there's, a, there's a report that came out recently last year from uh, WWF and Unilever, the Future 50 Foods report, which starts off by saying that 70% of all the food that we eat globally is, consists of only seven plant species and three animal species. And this is what's actually kind of destroying human diets and causing intolerances, etc., and also destroying the environment. So number one is on the dietary side, introducing new nutritious foods for consumers. And then number two is the social impact. When we talk about transformational foods, it's not just or transformational impact. It's not just like a, a small premium, uh, like a fair trade premium. It's kind of a small increment on an already low income base. This is actually products or foods that create entirely new income streams, which have an exponential increase on total household income, and they go almost exclusively into, into women and women's cooperatives, which, as we know, has in itself a kind of exponential in terms of how that money is spent within the household and within the community. So that's number two is the social. Number three is the environmental, transformational. And what do we mean by transformational in the environmental sense is foods that are not just sustainable and maintaining the status quo but foods that are regenerative agriculturally and so our specialized ingredients like baobab moringa and fonio are all foods that the more you produce the more soil gets like degraded soils will get restored the more carbon gets sequestered the more biodiversity is supported so yeah this is this is really the aduna proposition is it's not just about 
food ingredients. It's about food ingredients that come packaged with social and environmental outcomes that are um, ticking the boxes of SDGs, really, and some of the most important SDGs. Andrew, we're recording this podcast during perhaps the first few weeks, months of the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, what does this mean or what do you think this means to businesses like yourselves? Yeah, I was thinking about this earlier and um, <laughs> where do you start, really? But I've, I've kind of categorised into three areas. Number one is is the context. The context is, well, for us, a specific context in terms of we're selling, we're selling nutrient-dense superfoods. And, you know, we are starting to see, we have been starting to see a kind of quite a significant increase in the sales of those products, which makes sense in terms of there being, you know, plant-based, nutrient-dense and particularly long-shelf-life foods. So it's quite interesting from an industry perspective that, you know, people are looking to stock up on moringa and baobab and anything that, you know, naturally supports immune health. So that's one, you know, that's that's one very specific and maybe, you know, small point. But the, the much bigger point here is the sheer uncertainty of the context that we're facing because we don't know, you know, and I'm speaking as a, as a small business here, we don't know what's going to happen next week, whether the retailers are going to be closed down like they have been in other parts of the world, whether health food retail would be considered essential. It sits somewhere between grocery and pharmacy, so maybe it, it might be. Whether our warehouses, our logistics will be able to continue, whether internet orders are going to be able to continue. So there's, num- you know, the, the, the number one thing here in, in terms of the context is massive uncertainty. And of course, within some categories and some industries, some are benefiting in the short term from it, some are, you know, some are, really getting um, destroyed like entertainment and hospitality so that's number one the context and number two i think is just the health and safety and putting people first because you know we, we've closed our office last week and uh, we've got one of our team who's pregnant and we've got another who has some specific kind of respiratory conditions and you know even aside from those you know just for for any of us it doesn't feel uh, we don't want to take any risks, and so the, you know, the market and the business aside, number one has to come the people, you know, the teams and their safety. So that's the overriding thing. And then number three is our supply chain, because you know, firstly I was talking about the market, secondly our team here in the UK, but I've I've just described to you about communities that we work with in northern Ghana, and. You know, we have a population of, I said, probably fifteen to twenty thousand people who are actually really dependent on this value chain um, in a way that, you know, that other stakeholders with Aduna may not be. Um, we we had a very tough time back in twenty seventeen. We had a, an institutional investor that pulled out in the at the last minute after twelve months of due diligence, and we had to restructure the business. And at that time, I just remember thinking that. You know, if I lost everything that I've been, you know, I've put personally into the business, it would be painful, but I'd live on my friends and family who are, you know, have been the earliest investors in the business and our angel investors and our seeders, crowdfunding investors. If they all lost their, their investment, that would be 
you know, that would be really bad, but none of them, they'd all be okay, you know. Whereas the population in northern Ghana who actually depend on it for food security and very basics like, you know, yeah, food security, education, healthcare, you know, they are very vulnerable. So I think it's always in our mind with Aduna that we have to ensure the long-term sustainability of the value chain into those communities. So it's too early at this point to really know. Nobody knows what's going to happen next week or how long it's going to last. But, you know, that will be really to the fore in our thinking is how can we make sure that, you know, if there's an interruption, it's just an interruption and it's not, you know, that we can continue the next Baobab season and continue to, you know, support those communities. Um, Andrew, what would be your advice to those who are listening to this podcast who are either running their own social ventures or wishing to support them? Well, you know, I think we're all we're all like seeking advice from other people at the moment and no, nobody really knows what's going on. But I think, you know, leaning on the the previous example that I said, it's not comparable because it's, uh, you know, it was an investor pulling out, but it was, it posed a existential threat to our business. And so it raised a lot of questions. And I think, you know, what what got us through that was, you know, our our passion and commitment for the work that we're doing and to finding a solution, you know, whatever the solution may be, it's that kind of, you know, passion, commitment, persistence, that um, you know, ne- never say die attitude really, that will have enterprises and missions survive through some some pretty hairy times, which no doubt this is going to be one of them. Well, Andrew Hunt, thank you very much for your amazing story, your fantastic advice um, and your insight into the Bobab and other amazing superfoods. For everybody else who is listening to this podcast today, the links will be in the notes. So please do follow them and find out more about Andrew and his team. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback, so please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.